Okay, here we go. Luke chapter 11 is where we started in our Bible studies that Jesus is talking with his disciples. As he's talking with them, he takes time early that morning. He goes off and prays. When he's done praying, the disciples say to him, Lord, teach us how to do this prayer. Teach us to pray. And then he goes and he starts speaking about it. We're going to get to that passage in just a moment. But let's remind ourselves where we've been here in the last couple, three weeks, two weeks that we've had the class. We've pointed out that there are reasons why we should be praying. God requires it. Lots of different passages that it's commanded, it's encouraged, it's expected, it's assumed when you pray enter into your closet. So God requires it. We made this statement as well. God rewards it. That is that God is going to bless you for having that time of fellowship with him. Again, multiple passages where if you hearken unto him, if people hearken unto him, he will hearken unto you. And we've looked at these passages here a couple weeks ago. There was a third reason we gave. Jesus did it. By his own example, if Christ needed to pray, then we can make the conclusion, so do we. We need to have that time in prayer. Then we talked about who can expect to get answers in prayer. Okay, there are passages that talk about let men should pray everywhere. That idea of um, the idea where he says men ought always to pray. We were making a conclusion that that's not a basic statement that says, okay, God has promised to answer anybody and everybody's prayers. There are some more conditions that are listed in Scripture. Though he wants people to pray, he wants them to have a relationship with him first. So it starts off with that idea, okay, they need to be born again. They need to be saved, biblical terms that we use that talks about the relationship, our Father who art in heaven, the idea that there is a relationship already established. But the uh, point is that the ones that God says, I will definitely answer your prayers, I will hearken, I will listen to you, are people who are, one, saved, but there's more to that. There has to be a seeking of him. Uh, Even saved people, like James is writing in James chapter 4, you have not because you ask not, you're not seeking after God. And so there's that idea that we're supposed to not only be born again, but we're supposed to want to have fellowship with him. We went a little bit further. We said you have you and I need to make sure that we are clean before the Lord, that we are fessed up, if you want to say it that way. The uh, passage that is often quoted about prayer, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That righteousness talks about not just being saved, but the idea of having a lifestyle that you are living that's pleasing to the Lord. So we said save, seeking, sanctified. Let's add another S, the submissive. The idea of, okay, I'm praying, I'm willing to do what you want, not my will, but thine be done. Praying in the name of the Lord is that idea of surrender to him and doing his commandments. Then we said that there has to be this aspect. This is what Jesus talked about the night he was leaving, that he told his disciples that if you abide in my words and my words abide in you, we need to be in the word. We need to let God speak to us. And so that idea that there has to be mutual interchange between the two. Then we were stopping last time with just some of this comments. What hinders prayer? Um, a couple of three weeks ago, I uh, decided on a Saturday that what I wanted to do was pick up a lot of the sticks. There was the, finally the snow is gone. It's like, let's get out there. We don't have work day for a couple of days, but um, went across the front of the lawn just to get the bigger sticks off from the trees across the street. And I ended up, as I was taking my car, I filled it up twice the trunk and then dumped it out, all the different sticks that were across the, the front. And all of a sudden, my car stopped working. Oh, it was running, but it was like a tank. I mean, it was just chugging, chugging, chugging. It ended up that it wasn't very much that was a problem, but something so minor that one of the vacuum lines had popped off, and so then all of a sudden the car and the balance between the gas and the air was thrown off, and therefore the engine was just... 
uh, it ran like a tank or like a tractor that's, you know, on, that was having major problems. Something small can disrupt the flow of what we expect so that, and what we desire. The same thing is true in prayer. When we're praying to the Lord, we're talking to the Lord, something small can disrupt our prayer life. Now, these aren't small in, uh, in, in ways of what the impact can be, but let's list off from Scripture several, uh, several items that could disrupt your prayer life. That is, your communication with the Lord, vice versa, His blessing you in prayer. And so if we went and made a list, we would start with some of these. Okay, Passages of Scripture that would indicate that there is a reason why you're not getting answers to prayers, could be, one of them is you're not asking, you're not praying. It is easy for us to think about it, to intend to do something, but we just don't do it. It happens sometimes that it goes this way, that we say, okay, my wife knows that I love her, we say it once a month, uh, you know, we communicate that way, and then she'll say, hey, did you ever say, you, know, you haven't told me lately, yeah, I have, I've thought about it, but expressing it all of a sudden in the life and the situation, just the assumption, oh, she knows. And then there has to be those conversations like, okay, let's be more expressive. The same thing is true in our lives when it comes to prayer. We think about it. We talk about it. We might participate when we get together like this, but all of a sudden, what about your own personal prayer life? And he says that that will hinder prayer, that lack of praying, that, that idea of not spending time, not tuning up your life with the Lord. Let me give you another one that stands out in Scripture. The idea of unconfessed sin. That you and I regard iniquity in the heart. Here David says, then the Lord will not hear me. So if there's an unconfessed sin, whatever it may be, an anger, a jealousy, a, um, a taking something not appropriate, uh, not belonging to you, gossiping about another person, those things that, that would hinder our prayer life. Give you a third idea. Okay, a third idea, unresolved conflicts between individuals, bad attitudes towards other people. In Matthew chapter 5, he, this is the passage in the Sermon on the Mount that he is saying, whosoever shall is angry with his brother, say rakah, say uh, rude things to him, call him a fool. And he makes the comment, if you remember... You're in the uh, process of worshiping the Lord. If you remember, you come to the altar, you're before the Lord, and remember you have ought against your brother or your brother has ought against you. It goes both ways. If you haven't made an effort to resolve a conflict with somebody, that hinders your prayer life. Whether it be your spouse, your kids, your parents, a relative, a neighbor, you need to make effort on your part. Now, the flip side of it is this. Some people immediately say, and will ask this question, what if I've tried but the other person hasn't allowed us to resolve? You have to do your part. If they don't do their part, that's on them. But you need to make sure you have made effort that you're not, a, not harboring that bad attitude, that unresolved conflict or offense. Take it a little bit further. What about an unwillingness to forgive somebody? In, the, in the, what we call the Our Father in Scripture, he concludes, he says, if you forgive men their trespasses, your Father will forgive you. If you forgive not their men their trespasses, your Father won't forgive you. So you're angry at your, your, you know, you're angry at your parents because of the way they raised you. And you're bitter and you're upset and you have yet to even express to them or to others a forgiving attitude. You're angry because you got fired from a job. And it's always when people get fired, it is never their fault. It is always the businessman's fault or the employer's. We know that. that that's a reality of life that people are always picked on. People get fired because they've never done anything wrong. Right? 
That's the way we look at things. And so if you're not willing to forgive somebody, then you're abdicating the, the blessings of prayer. We take it a step further. The idea of mistreatment of others. In this text, it's the husbands that he talks to. That if you are not treating your wife appropriately, he goes on. He says, dwelling with them according to knowledge. He goes on and says, giving honor unto your wife. He goes on, he says, as unto the weaker vessel being heirs together. If I'm not treating Deb with respect, if I'm not elevating her, if I'm not lifting her up, and tearing her down is the, is the impression here, then my prayers are hindered. You can come to church, you can go through the motions, but if you're not right with your spouse, then your prayers are hindered, especially he's targeting the men in this passage. There's another hindrance, the lack of charity to the poor. We read in scriptures in the book of Proverbs about the idea that the person who stops his ears doesn't listen to those who are crying, the poor people. Then when he cries out for assistance, for aid, there's not going to be a heavenly hearing of him. And so the idea of you and I not being, not being charitable, not hearkening to those types of needs. We'll give you another thought. Praying selfishly. Again, back to James where he says, you ask and receive not. This is the text that says, because you ask not. But in the rest of the verse, because you ask amiss, that you may consume it upon your own lust. The idea that God, not your will, not what you desire, but this is what I want, this is what I, you know, what I really crave, therefore God, give it to me so that I can enjoy, so that I can just have what I want, so that I can be recognized. And so if we're praying with selfishness, not for the glory of the Lord, not for being used of the Lord. And again, we pray for our physical needs. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, it's our motive. Why do we pray for what we do? Is there a submissiveness? Is there a willingness to do it for the glory of God? Or God, help me to get a really good grade so that I can you know, be noticed. Help me to get the position of first instrument or first squad on the team. Why? Just so that I can, uh, this is something I want. This is something I, you know, for me, for me, for me. And he says, okay, that selfish praying, that can be one of those hoses that disconnects us from that proper balance with the Lord. Let's take another thought, not being in the word. We have already said that, he, that one of the requirements for blessings is if the word abides in you and you abide uh, in it. And so here he says, he that turns away his ear from hearing the law, his prayer is an abomination. So if we come to church, we say, okay, here I am. I'm doing my church thing on Sunday, but I haven't been in the word of God at all during this week. So preacher, you better make it really good because I'm here. And you, you, you know, you got to make me, get me interested in the Word of God some way, somehow. If you're born again, he's saying to you through this passage that, listen, you need to be in the Word personally. And if you're not in the Word personally, you can't expect all kinds of answered prayers. Get in the Word. Be reading it on a regular basis. Do whatever you need to do. Get other translations. Get some other type of print in your Bible. Get it on your phone where you focus. Get in the Word of God. Get it playing in your car. Do something because it will enhance your prayer life. I'll give you another thought here. Okay, that One author said this. A closed Bible results in a closed heaven. Or if you refuse to listen to God, He's not going to listen to you. They couldn't say it more succinctly and powerfully. Here's another one. The personal pride, the self-reliance. The story is of the uh, Pharisee and the publican. You all know this. You've, you've read it. Where they come and the one says, I thank you that I'm the, the Pharisee. I thank you I'm not like that guy. 
I thank you that I can come before you with my own righteousness, with my, depending upon myself. Basically, you owe it to me, God. And Jesus, in his comment, as he concludes, he says, which one of these men goes home justified, right with God? Well, it's obvious. The one who is the poor man in that story, the publican, the, uh, the one who is, who is in that culture put down because he's working for the enemy, and he's a tax collector, that's the publican. And Jesus is making sure that we understand that that man coming and saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That humility is all the difference in their getting their prayers answered. Give you another thought, the lack of faith. The lack of faith, where in James he talks about, let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. He that wavers is like a wave in the sea driven, for let not man think that he shall receive anything if he doesn't have faith. If all of a sudden we're saying, God, I believe you're going to take care of this, but then we're all of a sudden worrying and frustrated and anxious and upset with others. God, I'm going to trust you for this. And then we're trying to manipulate and make it happen in our own strength. A lack of faith gives a lack of prayer, prayer answers. I'll give you another thought. Oh, um, I wanted to take you here to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is a story that you're very familiar with. In Mark chapter 9, what he's doing in this text is he's telling the story about Jesus being on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus is on the Mount, he's with three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they see Jesus transfigured. When they come down from the Mount they encounter a group of people at the base of the mount after they've prayed, and they come down, and the people are upset. There's arguments going on that are taking place between Jesus' disciples and some of the Pharisees and scribes who are coming. They're critical of Jesus' disciples because Jesus' disciples were asked by a man to do something for that man. Do you remember what it was? The man comes and says, please help me out. He's got a problem. What's his problem? His son is afflicted. He's afflicted with, with uh, these torments, throwing himself in flames, the suicidal thoughts. And the man is asking the disciples to lend a hand. Help me out. Help me to resolve my family crises. What did the disciples, what did they, were they unable to do? They couldn't cast out the demon. Had they done it before? Yes, you go back to the last few verses of Mark chapter 6. In the last few verses of Mark chapter 6, they and Jesus had gone on a preaching tour through the same region just weeks before, and they went and they did exactly what Jesus was doing, preaching and casting out demons, healing all manner of diseases. Now, in Mark chapter 9, as time has gone by, all of a sudden the disciples, they're unable to do anything. And so we catch in verse 18 what happens is the, the father's t- talking about how his fa- son is foaming, gnashing his teeth, pining away. I spake to your disciples, but they could not cast him out, and they could not. Jesus' response, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him to me. Who is that spoken to? To the father? To the disciples. To his disciples, okay? And they brought him, that boy, unto him, to Jesus. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit, uh, the spirit tore him. That is, the boy is being uh, torn about by the, the demonic spirit. He falls to the ground, wallows, foaming. And the, the Jesus asked the father, How long ago since this came upon the, child, upon the boy? And the dad's response is, It's been since he's a little kid. A little child is the idea. And it goes on, and oftentimes he explains, cast him into the fire, into the waters to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. 
Now, watch the next phrase. If you believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Okay? And straightway, the father of the child cries out and says unto Jesus, what words? Lord, I believe, but help my... Okay, what's he basically saying? Yeah, it, it, does he trust Jesus? Okay, he came. He came. He has, a, he has a semblance of faith. But what does he acknowledge about his own faith? What is he, what is he admitting? He needs more. I don't have enough faith. I, I believe, but I don't have enough faith. And so Jesus, in this passage, is commenting, and he's giving him a promise of how he can bless and how he can, he can do, if you believe, if you're trusting me, I can work, and I can do this, this help you out in this uh, uh, whole place. Now, the parallel passage, I just want you to catch, the, Jesus made more comments. In Matthew chapter 17, there's more comments made by Jesus to this man when he said, all things are possible. Let me read for you Matthew chapter 17. Okay? Um, if you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, remove to a yonder place, and it shall, it shall be removed. Nothing shall be impossible unto you. That's the same story. That's the same setting in Matthew 17. And Jesus makes that comment, and he's talking about mountain-moving faith. He's saying that in the midst of the disciples are struggling. They're, they're, the problem with the disciples, by the way, was what? It's not that they, they, they lack faith, so to speak. What did they not do? What was it? Okay, well, let's back up with it. He says, this can only come out by prayer and fasting. What, what, where's the failure on the disciples' part? They didn't pray. They didn't pray. They didn't exercise their faith by praying. And if, and if in the sense, if we get it right, then what's happening is the, the attitude of the disciples was, we can do this ourselves. We've done it before. We can just go about doing it and doing God's work, doing God's bidding without taking time to show reliance upon the Lord. Now, that's one problem in this text. Jesus is, the, the Father is saying, here's my problem. My problem is, I, I, I think I need more faith. I think I need more faith. Help in my unbelief. I want to believe, but help in my unbelief. And so in this passage, you've got several things that are, that are operating. The lack of prayer makes a difference in the disciples' ability to serve. The lack of prayer. It is huge. But my question is, how much faith do we need to have? The dad says, help in my unbelief. Does Jesus answer his prayer? Yes or no? Yeah, even though the dad says, I think I need more faith. Does the Lord grant his request? How much faith does it take? Okay, is, you know, the, we, we talk sometimes in incremental things. We're, we're very you know, oriented to numbers and things of that sort. My point is that we don't, do we, do we ever, I guess, do, do you ever feel like the Father? Help me in my lack of faith. Okay, help me to even grow more. That, by the way, is a real sense of great faith because who's he relying upon? Who's he turning to? Not himself, but who's he saying? I don't even, God, God, I need your help so much. I, I need your help even to believe, even to trust. And so in this story, you have the idea that, that even, um, 
immature faith. I'm going to use that term. Not complete faith. There's, there's room for growth in the faith. God answers that type of faith. But if there's not even an expression of faith, if there's self-reliance, which is an absence of faith, then there's, there's no power. And so you and I have to ask the question is, how many times do we as disciples, do we rely on self-reliance? Our faith is not placed in the Lord, but in essence it's placed in ourselves. My ability, my expertise, my Christianity, my, my experiences. That's not, an, that's not a step of faith. That is like the disciples, a step of self-reliance. And so you and I need to be more and more like this God, this Father. Lord, you know, I need to keep on growing. I need to keep on growing. Help me in my unbelief to trust you more and more and more. And so the Father is blessed by that because of what he does. There is the, let's add to it because this is the story, a lack of fasting. The lack of praying and fasting. We're going to spend some time talking about practical aspects of fasting. But fasting is just basically saying to God by physically um, giving up some things. It's not Lent. Okay? As believers, we don't need to observe Lent. There's nothing special about Lent. That we give something up so that we earn favor. No, no. What it is, is we say to the Lord in this response in fasting is, Lord, I need this answer. I need this wisdom. I need this assistance. Right now, I need it more than my necessary food. Sleep. There was one other area in sex, in the relationships. But he says, Lord, these are human desires, and I'm going to lay them aside, and I'm not going to participate in that because I need you more than I need those things right now. And so we'll talk about it a little bit more, but that's the idea of fasting. And there isn't, in, when we talk about fasting, there isn't a, uh, anywhere in Scripture that says it has to be for 40 days or it has to be for a 24-hour period. It has to be daylight period. It is whatever you and the Lord say, okay, this is my period, and I'm going to focus on giving up something that is a necessity of life in a physical realm, I'm going to give that up so I can focus on you, so that I can pray and, and, and take that same time in prayer. That's what fasting is all about. And uh, using, using the triggers of the yawning, using the triggers of the stomach growling as, okay, that's going to remind me to pray again, to pray for this item that I'm praying for. And so he says in this passage that one of the reasons that we don't have answer to prayer is because we just don't fast. And that is probably true. If we did a survey right now of this auditorium, how often, how many times, when was the last time you fasted from some, from some food is the most typical fast? How, uh, when was the last time you did that? In the busyness of our life, we just move right through. And he says, wait a minute, if you want real blessings, there's got to be even this aspect of faith with fasting. So let's take another step here. Praying wrong Okay, Matthew chapter 6, Luke chapter 11 is, uh, is an extensive passage on Jesus talking to his disciples and saying, okay, I want to talk to you about how to pray. Now, Matthew 6 is in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Luke 11, same things he says as in Matthew 6, is a repetition of praying. And when he's saying about here's how you pray, he starts off in Luke chapter 11, down a couple verses, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We call that the Our Father. And he points out, okay, he's going to say, here's how you pray right. 
But let's back up. Let's, before we do the Luke 11, let's hold your finger there and go to Matthew 6. Matthew chapter 6, before he prefaces that whole aspect of, okay, let me give you a, a prayer guideline. Let me give you the ingredients to prayer. He gives them some aspects of don't do this. Okay, he starts off with a negative. Don't do what the hypocrites do. That's where he's going to be in Matthew chapter 6. And so if you turn to that Matthew 6 passage and we read this, okay, let's, let's start off in Matthew chapter 6 where he's getting the sense here. And we're going to start with verse 1. In verse 1 is not talking about praying, but it's talking about almsgiving. By the way, just the way this makes sense is the almsgiving, the praying from a Jewish perspective, the idea of the fasting. What did they usually associate? What places or place did they associate a lot of that activity with? The temple and or the synagogues. And so he's kind of grouping this all together because the almsgiving, the praying, the fasting are all things that we're supposed to be doing in relationship to worship. Okay, worship in a community sense, worship in a, pri- in a personal sense when you're gathering even as a community. And so as he's talking and he's just wrapped up some of the activities that we're not supposed to be doing, and instead in the end of, verse, uh, the end of chapter 5 he says, okay, be mature. Be growing as your Father is perfect, so be perfect. And he gets right into this area of spiritual activity. Here's the spiritual activity. Take heed that you do not your alms before men. This is that charitable, gracious giving, you know, that um, deacon fund thing, that throwing the coins in the trumpet to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when you give alms, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have the glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. When you do alms, when you are charitable, when you are helping people out, make sure that what? Your left hand doesn't what? Okay, doesn't see what the right hand's doing. In other words, are you supposed to... Is he saying physically hide the one hand because then your left hand, your brain won't know what's happening? No, he's using symbolic speech, you know, an interpretive speech that just says basically you don't have to be showing off. You don't have to make sure people know about it. And then he makes comments in verse 4, when your alms may let them be done in secret, your father will reward you openly. Then verse 5. Verse 5 is the prayer aspect. That idea, again, in you're coming in a public place, you're, um, and it's a worship center, whether it be the synagogue or the temple, and he says, okay, here's, here's an opportunity, because you, you publicly, one of, your, one of your offerings was very, very important, very regular, you give offerings to help out the poor. But when you come together for a public uh, gathering, also one of the things we do is pray. And he says, okay, now, when you pray, in verse 5, he doesn't say if you pray, he says when you pray. So he's, it's an assumption. And he's going to give us things we ought to avoid. You look at verse 5. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 7. What is, what would Jesus describes, you finish the, the statement. Jesus describes wrong praying as doing something like blank. What is it? There's several things, by the way. What are one of the things that Jesus says, this is, don't pray this way, this is wrong. This isn't the way you're supposed to pray. Okay, don't, what do you mean by show? Do it in public, not in, not in private. Well, Joyce, I think you went right with that. Okay, you're drawing attention to yourself. Okay, that whole idea that, again, um, we can understand it because the, the Pharisees, Sadducees, they would stand on the... He says it. They stand where? 
Yeah, on the street corner. There they are. As people are headed to the worship center, they're lifting up their hands, and they're praying, and they're being loud and verbose. And, it, and Jesus says, it's all about show. It's all about show. Okay. Can that ever happen? Translate that into 2019 American evangelical church situation. Okay. How can it be for show in that same way? You, I don't see any of you standing out in front of the building as people are coming and parking and saying, Lord, bless this day, and loud and verbose. You don't do that. But can we be guilty of the same idea by doing what? Or are we never guilty? Is there anything that you would say, hey, this is something I, I want to make sure I avoid? Yes, no? What's that? I'm, I'm straight into you. Okay, we need to be praying quietly. Okay, let's, let's reverse that. If, if, is, is it hypocritical on my part if the only praying I do is when I get a microphone in front of me? That would be the, that, that's a violation of this text. That the only time I'm praying is all of a sudden when there's an audience to listen to me pray. Then it's wrong. Is it just as wrong that the only time you pray is when you have an audience at the table? And you have the long, verbose prayer, but you don't have any other time of fellowship with the Lord. Is that hypocritical? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, is it hypocritical for us to pretend in a setting like this that we are given to prayer and then actually we aren't? That's hypocritical. What else does he, does he say in this text? He says, don't do this. Don't be sh for show anything else. That's wrong. That he says, don't do this. This is wrong praying. You're teaching this to a small group of kids. What are you going to tell them that they shouldn't be doing in prayer? What do you mean by that? Really? Can in Jesus' name become a vain repetition? Yeah, it can. Yeah. Now, for sure, we can pick on the liturgical churches. What's a vain repetition in a lot of their churches? Yeah, the Lord's Prayer itself. That's a good illustration. Because then the group, it becomes a canned prayer. Okay? Any kind of canned prayer. Obviously, we'd say that's vain repetition. But we can become just as vain in our repetition, right? Sandy said we can do it when we just all of a sudden cliche phrases. Or how else can it work? Can it work the same way with all of a sudden when we go to prayer, we're just rep repeating the same idea without focusing on our prayer? Lord, we come to you, I pray that you bless this day, bless our family, bless the country, bless everything around me, amen. And we say that singular prayer every time, and we're doing it in such a hurry because we've got more important things to do. Does that become vain repetition? It can, it can. So we ought not to be doing that. Okay, we have to be very careful. He talks in this text about something else that we, we need to avoid. Anything else? Vain repetitions, street corner type things. You got anything else that he says, hey, don't get caught up in this. How about verse 7? There's something else. Long prayers. Okay, is it wrong to pray long? No, yes. Okay, no, no, there's nothing. I mean, did Jesus ever pray for extended period of times? 
Okay, so it's not. What's he? What's he criticizing then? Just for the sake of praying, and I've got to pray. You know, you know. Here I am. I'm gonna. You know. Now, should I counter that by praying ten second prayers? Is it? Okay, that's the swinging on the pendulum. Okay, you know, let's bow our heads, let's pray. Amen. Okay, they didn't even get a chance to bow their heads and close their eyes to join me. Okay, there's, there's got to be a balance here. He is basically saying in this idea that what we're supposed to be doing is our praying is we shouldn't make, make the mistake that if I pray long or verbose, therefore I'm being heard. Um, this, is, this is my silliness at times that, I'm, that I can become you know, overly critical of, of situations. But I joke about, about somehow, sometimes that certain, certain individuals that I know of who were very flowery in their, in their worship, all of a sudden when they went to prayer, their whole language changed. Their speech pattern changed. The tone of their voice changed. And it became all of a sudden very, very not them, Okay. And that doesn't mean that they, they, you know, that they were wrong, but should I, be, should I be able to communicate with the Lord in a natural tone that is part of my normal tone, that it doesn't have to be, you know, I, I'm just thinking of a gentleman that I knew years ago. Go ahead. I don't have that, and I don't want to go there, and yet I want to go there. That all of a sudden I changed my entire language to speak 1611 in a deep voice. Because now God is going to hear me because thou in heaven. And it might, my whole, why? Can God just hear me when I come to him with a humility and speak to him like I normally am talking? The answer is yes. Okay. And so you and I, we want to avoid the negatives. Okay, now let, let's, let's flip the pancake totally over. What is he encouraging us to do? What does he want us to do? Well, obviously, in those same verses, when we pray, what are we supposed to do? Not in the public show, which it's okay at times to do public prayer, but what is he strongly encouraging? Private prayer. Go into your prayer closet. The idea of that you need to be focusing on a personal private prayer time before you go into the public show. So in this idea, he's talking and he's going to be encouraging good things. Good things like being persistent. This passage is going gonna, is gonna to strengthen that idea. When you pray, as you pray, further on, keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking. And so you and I ought not to stop in prayer. Okay, that's one of the negatives that people do. They stop praying. They're not persistent. They're not consistent. We, uh, you've heard about this Florence Chadwick. She was doing the, uh, had done the English Channel, goes to the West Coast. She's going to go between Catalina Island and the California coast. She's going to do one of those swims, be the first woman to do this for those several miles in the Pacific, but it was very cold. And she didn't make it after 15 hours of swimming, and she was just within a couple hundred yards of shore. But there was something that happened. A dense fog came in, blocked her view, and because she couldn't see what was ahead, it discouraged her. It took away her, her ability to just keep on going. So she did it again a few days later. She did the same thing and had no problem because she could see the coastline. And it gave her that incentive. You and I need to have that same idea that we don't give up. We don't stop because we get distracted, but we see the end goal. The end goal. The end goal. God is going to answer my prayer. Let me be persistent. Let me be consistent. Let me keep on praying. And so when we do that, 
Jesus said, when you keep on praying, here's the way you need to pray. I don't mean to be simplistic, so simple, because you are more, more advanced in your Christian faith, and yet this is where he's talking to his disciples in that last period of time of training his disciples before he leaves. He's saying, guys, you of all people, I've preached this before, but I want to tell you in Luke chapter 11, I want to tell you how to really pray. And he gives them the Our Father once again. We call it the Our Father. He gives them that prayer. What is in that prayer that you and I must grab onto to say when we pray, let's make these elements part of our prayer life. If we do, it improves our prayer life because we're praying the way Jesus told us to pray. Okay, it's too easy to get caught up in public. It's too easy to do expectations of other people. What does Jesus want of me when I pray that he says will help me to pray? And so we look at Luke chapter 11 and we say, okay, here's some things that are going to stand out of the text. Before we do that, let's, let's make some comments. He is making it clear to these guys that this praying is supposed to be a priority concern. The setting. They're busy. They're, uh, they're all about going out and serving him. And all of a sudden, this day starts, and Jesus takes time at the beginning of the day that as he was praying in a certain place, when he sees one of the disciples says, teach us to pray. And Jesus is making it clear, though they're in a busy, busy, busy environment, there's lots of people, prayer is essential. He's taught that at the coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. Prayer and fasting is essential. He's taught that in Luke 10, Mary and Martha story, that Martha is so busy with other things, but Mary chose the better thing, the better item, the one item that needed to be chosen, sitting at the feet of Jesus, and then right after that, he puts this story in about praying and fellowshipping. So it's supposed to be a priority. And let's make this statement. God expects you to be praying when you pray. Not if, but when you pray, pray after this fashion. It's something we should want to do. Praying is something we should desire for true disciples because these guys come to Jesus and say, teach us to pray. Help us in that sense. It's something we need to learn. Okay, praying is something that we need to grow in. It's something that is unnatural for us, and so we need to mature in this area. The best way, by the way, to teach yourself and others is basically be doing it. For Jesus to get others to be encouraged about it, to be excited about it, he did it. He did it. He did it. He did it. And they're seeing answers to prayer. So if you say, okay, I want my kids to learn about prayer, one of the best things for them to know is seeing and knowing that you pray and that you get answers so that they have that same desire to do that. They, they do it. Uh, the praying, as we'll see in this text, it doesn't need to be long. Now, Jesus has had an extended prayer time, but he's giving them a basic idea of prayer. It doesn't mean, okay, and here's the reason I say it is this. Some individuals, it could be you, say, I just don't have time to pray an hour a day. That's just, that's going to be too hard for me to carve out that time in a day because of my other obligations. Therefore, the response of some people is, if I can't give an hour a day, then I just won't even be able to give any. Why bother? Why try? Okay, and so that's not the point. Jesus is saying, you can have effective prayer and it's not based on a timer. It's based on your heart and the elements of what you put into that prayer. And so if you're saying, okay, I need to develop this area, you don't have to set a period of time that's an hour a day or two hours or I'm going to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Y'all, and that's just too long for me, so I won't even bother fasting. This text is saying it doesn't have to be long periods. 
to, to make an effective time. So it gives a basic pattern. And in the Luke 11 and the Matthew chapter 6, the basic pattern is not a prayer for reciting. It is basic pattern or elements of form, a pattern, a model that you and I can follow. Now, when I compare that model to the Matthew 6 passage, okay, the, our Father in the Sermon on the Mount, they're extremely simil- similar. The wording is not the same. Some of the phrases, in fact, there's a couple times that the, the phrases aren't repeated between the two different occasions. And so I conclude that there's no specific words or phrases that we must say in a certain word order or we're not effective in praying. He's giving a pattern. That pattern could have some modification to it. It could have some adjustment to it. It could be different wording. That's okay. As long as you were saying, okay, as a whole, I'm going to be praying, and as a whole, I'm going to try to incorporate these elements in my prayer time generally. Some days it may not happen. Sometimes it might happen. Some days, for some of you, it happens this way. You are so overwhelmed in a crisis, in an emotional situation, you don't go into all the other facets of prayer that you normally do. This is going to be where your focus is. Some of you, some days, it's going to be, I need, because I'm discouraged, I'm down, I need a time of just praise. And so your prayer time becomes a pure praise time because you need it, you want it, you desire to be uplifted. And so he's giving general prayer principles that does every single time you pray, you have to incorporate all five or six of these principles. I'm not convinced that's the case based on the book of Acts because not every time did they do all of these principles. But in general, generally speaking, okay, there's elements that we can follow. Generally speaking, our prayer is going to be in private. There's occasions it may not be as private as a prayer closet. But generally speaking, he's saying make sure that in your life you have that set-aside time where you can go and get alone with me, and that's your general practice. Could there be days that the crowds are too big that Jesus didn't even have time to get away? Yes, it happened. Mark 6. And so here is an opportunity that you and I can say, okay, how do I pray? I need to, generally speaking, have some privacy where I can get alone and focus upon the Lord. Okay? But what we have are some basic elements. Let's talk about those basic elements for a couple minutes and then stop. One of the things we need to have, and we've already alluded to it, if I'm going to be effective in praying, is personal, this shouldn't be broken into two, it should be one phrase, personal relationship. Okay, and that, that we've already talked about. Our Father which art in heaven. There has to be that idea that you are confident you are already a child of God. You're, you're, you're sure that you're born again. You're invited to pray because you're God's child. You're his daughter, you're his son, and he's saying, okay, come talk with me. So there has to be, in his pattern of prayer, he is going to say at both different occasions, make sure you have a relationship with the Father. Make sure that you are born again. Okay, that's where most of you say, got that one. Check, we've got it taken care of. Then there should be an element, typically an element, generally speaking, is an element of praise and or reverence. Everything else, we've got a PR here. Okay, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Just to help you to understand, it is a command. It is a subordinate command in the original language. Let your name be hallowed. Please, you allow your name to be lifted up. It's a middle voice imperative, which has a lot of different aspects to it. That is basically, it's an urgent cry from, for a subordinate to a superior saying, please 
of this is what I desire. This is something I want you to do. I want you to make sure your name is hallowed. Your name is glorified. I can make this conclusion that if I'm to pray this way, Lord, please make sure your name is glorified. Where or who am I asking to make sure his name is glorified? Through what I do. Through what I say. Lord, please work in such a way that you are being magnified in what I'm going to be asking, what I'm going to be doing, how I'm going to be submitting, how I live. And so there's that idea that we want to come in prayer, and one aspect of prayer is going to be praising, giving thanks, giving him glory, giving him honor. And again, we mentioned that there's an urgency of wanting him to be exalted. And so when we come to prayer, here's an aspect. One of the, one of the things we want to be doing when we come before the Lord in our personal time is make sure we remind ourselves, whatever phrase you use, however you do it without vain repetition, but come before the Lord and have momentary time where you're praising him, you're glorifying him, you're exalting him, you're you're giving, you're, you're stating his credentials. You, you might talk about his holiness, his majesty, his glory, and you're reminding yourself of how great he is and how humble you need to be before him. We don't want to come to prayer and say, God, I thank you. I'm not like so-and-so. No, we come before the Lord and say, you are holy, you are mighty, you are a creator. Whatever terms you're going to use, but it helps you to make sure that you are coming as a supplicant and not somebody that says you deserve his attention. Not as an individual that says he owes you. But you have a humility that is genuine that as you pray and you're saying, God, you need to be exalted. This is all about you. It starts with a humble attitude before the Lord. And I need those reminders. Okay? I need to be reminding myself, I am not sitting down at a table in a restaurant giving an order to a server and then criticizing the server for not being fast enough, criticizing them for forgetting some of the things that I've requested. That's not what we're doing when we're praying. We're not giving God our menu that we desire. We are humble supplicants coming before him and saying, you are majestic, I am just so small. That aspect of worship. Okay, this morning, when we say, let's have some private time of prayer, that private time of prayer should be one of the elements is, God, thank you. Thank you for your majesty. Thank you for your omnipresence, that you're here in this room with us. Thank you that you are creator, you are almighty, you are majestic. You are holy. That sets a tone for you in your worship. In the next song, you're going to sing, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. By you reminding yourself, thinking before him that you are in the presence of the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And so that humility, that praise, that reverence, Jesus says we need that. We need that when we come to pray. That is one of the elements that we pause and think about his greatness. There's like five or six more elements. Let's pick up next week with those ideas.